1: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of your favorite tennis podcast. It's Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. My name is Mitch Michaels, host of this show from the Santa Monica studios as we get ready for another episode of Fantastic Tennis Talk with two big guests this week. First up, it's Senior Editorial Manager of Tennis.com, Ed McGrogan. He's been a standout journalist covering the sport for years. He is in Charleston for the WTA's event there. The switch to the clay has begun. He's got a lot to break down on Jessica Pagula, on Shabor. We recap Petra Kavitova's win in Miami and what to expect, even on the men's side when Novak Djokovic returns to the red surface in Monte Carlo next week. And then Brad Stein, the current coach of Tommy Paul and a coach for over 30 years at the pro level with players such as Jim Courier, Kevin Anderson, and Sebastian Grosjean. He joins the show for the second time. One year ago, we spoke and Tommy Paul was slowly rising up the rankings. The ascent has continued. We break down a lot, including Paul's semifinal run in Melbourne, a wacky match against Taylor Fritz and Acapulco, a lot with the veteran coach you're not going to want to miss. It's Ed McGrogan and Brad Stein, and it's Tennis Channel Inside In, starting right now. All right, now welcome on to Tennis Channel Inside In, returning to the show live on the ground. we got boots on the ground in Charleston. Uh, Ed McGrogan back on the show, Senior Editorial Manager for Tennis.com. Ed, always a pleasure to talk to you, uh, especially you know, throwing it back a little bit now out in the field, covering the tournament. Uh, excited to hear what you have to say.
2: Yeah, no, thanks, Mitch. Um, it is always good to get out there, whether you're a fan, uh, whether you're in the media. Um, it's obviously... You know, we, we do put on a ton of TV. Um, there's events all throughout the year. And you can almost kind of glaze over it sometimes, I feel. But I think it, it is when you are at these events, again, and no matter what position you're in, that you get a really great sense of, you know, the players uh, that you see on screen and just a sense of, like, the tennis community at large. And this is this is an event in Charleston that has been – you know, I think a really big success story, um, mm. it's been around for 50 years, for one, but it's just, you know, it, it's it's one of the, the best 500 fields in all of tennis. Yeah. If you end up if you do end up coming here, um, which I would recommend, it's it's right. It's very very accessible um, today. It's already down to two courts, but um, an event I would put high up on maybe the underrated list of ones to attend.
1: Yeah, the round of 16 is today. It's, it's a huge day of tennis, which we'll get to in a second. But it also turns the page on on the clay court season where Europe is next, literally next week. You mentioned the success story, and it's 100% right. It's got the lineage of being one of the most prestigious tournaments that the WTA has ever had. But it also has revamped in the last couple of years. And you, you know, this being the first time you've been there since the new stadium and the new grounds, it is completely state-of-the-art. It's great. The players love coming there. And I think it speaks volumes, as you can kind of elaborate on. They're getting top players that want to play there, not just Americans. A lot of players want to play in this event, which, you know, on the part of the schedule, the Always Jam Tennis schedule right after Miami, isn't easy to do. I think it speaks volumes to how just great and how accommodating this tournament in the city of Charleston is to them.
2: I mean, it's. I think that says it all in a way about this event because, yeah, you would – I always think about tournaments that are held right before, say, a Grand Slam, and how you know how thin those fields can be um, because of the timing and the players want to peak for certain events. And you just end, you know, a month long run through Indian Wells in Miami, and I realize there's very few players that actually play all four weeks. But still, it's it's a time where it, it, you might think it's a lot to ask players to come right up here. Maybe they want to break before Europe. You know, the U S even has like, there's even Billie Jean King cup next week. So, but once again, and you just said it, I mean, this field had before Sabalenka pulled out, mm-hmm. had half the top 10 and nearly half <laughs> the top 40 in the field. Yeah. Um, you know, and just the is like, I think the best example of this, I was I sat down with her for a story two days ago here and she ends up going to the doubles final in 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 miami which is played late sunday afternoon and with how much she's played beforehand singles doubles what she has on the horizon she ends up driving to charleston Mm -hmm. on monday to still make the main draw and play the next day Mm -hmm. so and, and you're right like it's Benchich is here, Jabur is here, Badoza is here, players that right. This is not just, you know, this is not like forty five Americans and, and three internationals. This is a well rounded field and, and yeah, I mean to your point about the stadium and the, the the, grounds. Um I've been here this is probably my fifth time here, but first time since Ben Navarro and, and his company or his crew kind of re reimagined this event and it's pretty stunning. Um I I would, again, not something that you won't necessarily pick up on TV, but this is kind of like a repolished jewel of a stadium and, and the players do respond to that.
1: This tournament's proven to be a launching pad for the start of clay season and beyond just looking at who's done well here. And uh, we are going to get into the field in just a moment. But I want to bookend Miami in the Miami Open for the WTA. Uh, and it did not have, unfortunately, Igas Swiatek, And there were some injuries and some people missing. But it had Petra Kvitova at 33 years old, becoming the second-oldest Masters Premier champion on the WTA behind Serena. She goes through the gauntlet, beats Verbakina in the final in straight sets. And it's been five years, Madrid 2018, since Petra, who's as accomplished as anyone really at this point on the WTA, had won a big title. But she did it with the classics, right? Her serve from the ad court, that lefty serve, her forehand. But she did it with some grit and some determination, too. A 16-14 tiebreak in the first set final. And uh, with everything she's been through, it's hard not to just kind of get up and feel good for the fact that Petra Kvitova has found her way back into the winner's circle.
2: Yeah, this was, um, I think another example of really, you know, the, I, I could almost compare Petra in a way to like Stan Wawrinka in a mm. sense, where yeah, at a good. moment's notice, you, you really can get anything on the positive end from her. And it, it started with, you know, her play in Indian Wells too. She, she reached the quarters there, but ended up winning over Pagula. In a 13 11 third set breaker to, in that event. Yeah. Um, you know, also had like a 6 0, a, a really strange, you know, score over Ostapenko. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. tough, you know, three set loss to Sakari. So, like, with the benefit of hindsight, you could almost look back and see, like, Pagula, or I'm uh, sorry, Kvitova really is heating up. But, you know, even to that point, I was, I was pretty shocked that she did beat with because I was fairly confident that we were going to get the double from, mm. from Rubachina just given how, you know, searing hot she has been really since Wimbledon. Um, and then, but we, you know, when you can pull off that, you know, marathon tie break that can, you know, that can deflate a player a little bit, no matter how good they are. And it did seem like whomever, whomever won that breaker was going to take the match. And then, you know, six, two, A bit of a rides it out. So, I mean, that's an awesome win for her. You 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 could say it's probably maybe even her best win since with you know her two Wimbledon Mm. titles. Honestly,
1: yeah. And and just maybe the surprising (laughs) thing isn't the fact that she won a big tournament, knocked off a big player. Because I do think with even even as she gets older, her game ages pretty well. She's played well on all these different surfaces, but. For whatever reason, and maybe there is reason to this, she hadn't really done well in the in the North American swings, both at the beginning and the end of the year. So this was huge for her. It's another name into the mix, and you'd like to think she's getting back into her groove, and there's a lot of good tennis to come in the clay court season. For Rabak and Ed, I mean, no shame in going. I mean, you go Aussie Open final, you win Indian Wells, you lose in the final of Miami. This has been quite a run for a player who... You know, again, took the tennis world by storm in Wimbledon, but did not fall victim to the "quote unquote" curse that you know you win a slam and then you fall back to reality. She has been steadily improving. Hiccups here and there, losing in a final, but Elena Rabakina is firmly in the mix for every one of these tournaments.
2: Yeah, you know, I was looking at um, really a lot of the players that have kind of ascended since you know Ash Barty and Serena Williams had bowed out last year, and I, there's a few players that have really kind of seamlessly made these star turns, and Robakin is certainly one of them. Um, the serve, I mean, I think you can, you know, I'm going to bring back Kavitava here for a second for a point of discussion, but <clears throat> I think Robakin has served, you know, that's, that's a superior shot even what Kavitava can do on, yeah. on, on its best day. So I think that, you know, we, we, we found really another, player who is and i think very comfortable in the spotlight i think that's you know her mo kind of as everybody's seen she kind of really you know keeps it excuse me keeps the even keel but you know someone who is going to be a top two or three player once a full set of 52 week rankings come in and you know i i think what I'm most curious to see about the clay with her is, yeah, just like we've, we've seen this game now really kind of dominate on grass and hard. And yeah. at the same time, I think her game is so good that it translates really to anything.
1: Yeah, the surface change is going to be fascinating, not just for but for a couple of these players at the top, and maybe players that haven't had the best start to the year to switch up the surface, see how they do. Uh, and, and just the last point before we look ahead, you know, there was the unfortunates with Sabalenka, you know, not going to play Charleston with the injury. Andrescu got injured. Ega did not play. We know Garbini Muguruza has taken some time off. Do you think that there is any concern with, you know, the injuries, the schedules on the WTA? Because these are some big names. We know the talent pool's deep, Ed, but these are some big names that are missing some time. And unfortunately, some of them are at the bigger premier events.
2: I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you I'm always concerned with how the tennis calendar is. I, I don't think it does the. The sport at large favors considering just, you know, there, there is no break at all. Um, I don't blame the players for, for withdrawing when, when they feel it's necessary. Um, you know, the injuries, obviously, that's a forced withdrawal that happens, but this is really like, if we're putting it in baseball terms, we've just finished like the second or third inning, I feel like, uh, of this calendar. So, um, and you know, even now it's two months until Roland Garros for the most part. So, um, at the one point I'm concerned about it, but the other point, uh, the other side, I, I also just say like, these are things you've got to expect to happen. Um, yeah. and I think again, players have been increasingly just keeping more and more for the majors. Um, so you are going to, you know, you are going to get a, patrick a bit of a esque result mm-hmm. um you know over the course of the next couple months here just because a there's there's a lot of you know uncertainty to who will play but b it is a very talented tour um I, I i do think the depth of the wta which i think was for years kind of seemed like as a crutch because we couldn't get like slam winning number ones for a while or multiple time grand slam champions. Like now I think that depth has become something of, of an asset for the store for the tour. So, you know, in in that respect, I think you're going to see a a pretty, a pretty balanced spread. And I think what you've seen from Sviatek this year, like she just hasn't been that invincible player that she was last year where she just could not lose. Um, So I, I think that makes it all the more compelling as we go along.
1: Yeah, Iga's return, pending return, is so fascinating because last year, especially on the clay, she just utterly dominated everyone. But now we're at a point where she didn't win any of the Sunshine Double, didn't play Miami. We're not sure what her return is going to be in there. Maybe the aura of complete you know, invincibility is gone. There's still her talent, which is superior in a lot of ways, but there is some questions in her game. And just to follow up on that, I read the other day, you know, it kind of stunned me. She's already twelfth all time in weeks at number one. Like that, just seems like an already outrageous result.
2: Very surprising, yeah. Very surprising. You know, when you said that, that's kind of a that's kind of a shock to me too. But I mean, that's just a note of how, how great her year was, and she she will keep adding to that too. Um, we'll just see
0: where it goes.
1: More with Ed McGrogan here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, let's look at that Charleston field. We mentioned how stacked it is and how loaded it can be. There's still 16 players left. We've seen a few upsets, but a lot of the top players still in it, including that number one seed, Jess Pagula, who, add much to your uh, advantage and your enjoyment, was uh, almost you know surrounded by Bills fans yesterday, but she's played very sharp tennis. Uh, and just everything that she says that's very, very uh, professional in how she's goes about her career it seems to me like she's very process oriented you've gotten a chance to talk to her she obviously loves this event but she has her mind on bigger picture results and just enjoying the process I think that's how she's able to overcome maybe tough defeats like kavitava in Indian Wells and Rabakin in Miami that she just seems like she's focused on the next task at hand
2: yeah there's a um there's the word that came to mind when I talked with the goal this week is just balance. Um, and she said that word many times um, during when we had a chat also in, in other press sessions, but she, you know, when you look at her schedule, it, it's just, it's stunning how much she plays and wins. And by this point in a lot of players career, once they've established themselves, like they don't play doubles, you know, that kind of is shed off their, you know, their, their plate, um, and it's a much more refined. But Tagula, it, she really embraces, I think, the volume of competition. She she just plain said to me, like, the reason I play singles and doubles is I want to win. And she just wants to she, – she wants almost as many opportunities as there are made to her to get a grand slam title, get that goal. I think she actually would be – you know singles or doubles i'm almost looping them together as as a as something of a of a source of inspiration yeah. and pride for for making that breakthrough yeah um but but she you know clearly she's a late bloomer too which i think is the interesting part in all this i mean she kind of had this rapid ascent into the top 20 a couple of years ago and then last year just really turned it on with excellent results pretty much everywhere getting becoming the number one American, not just in women's tennis, in all of tennis last year. Mm. And, you know, someone, I I think that's another thing that she really likes to take upon herself as well. She's very even keeled. She's got a good balance. Again, like a very good sense of humor, a good, you know, she's very strong on social media. I'm sure you guys have seen, everybody's seen, Um, the Heineken gift and and all that. Like she takes this all, I think in very in in stride because she's very comfortable with who she is. And, you know, I, I always wonder about like, do we talk too much about like her and, and the bills and her and, you know, everybody that's associated with, with her family. I think she, she somehow, you know, she doesn't shy away from those topics at all, but she also, again, I mean, she is her own person. She is, She's not just the bills, the saver, she's not just, you know, whoever you kind of may, maybe associate her with, but she's kind of at the peak of, you know, maybe like physical and a mental kind of perspectives yeah. when it comes to what she wants to do. So um, as crazy as it sounds, it wouldn't surprise me if she, you know, wins here. I mean, by the time this is up, it, it, we'll, we'll see what happens, but... That's just the kind of level she's at and, and comfort she's
1: at. Yeah, and you touched on a lot of things there, one being the doubles and how much she cares. I remember the U.S. Open last year where she had, her and Coco had that tough call go against them and how upset they got. But in, I was looking at it, the positive, like she really cares out there. Like a lot of players might just go, a lot of top singles players might just go through the motions and doubles, but she's out there to win. Speaking to what you said about that competitive nature and I do think that there is a healthy debate of, because she's played well. She's gone deep into all these tournaments. Clay might be her best or co-best surface. So there's real opportunity here, and I definitely think she senses it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what she does. The other player that I wanted to get your thoughts on, because I'm happy to see the signs are kind of turning, but Anjabor had a year to remember last year, and we know what she represents and how important she is to the game of tennis and sports to an entire region of the world. But the Sunshine Double, she was pretty open about playing because she felt like she wanted to be here. Maybe her body wasn't ready. She started to look a little better in these couple matches early. So I'm, I'm starting to see at least positive signs from a player that's so dynamic and can be such a force, especially on the clay.
2: I mean, if there's anybody who needs kind of that transition to clay, it feels like it's your burr. Just a very you know tougher start to the year. Some injury. There's obviously... The ranking and, and you're going to get everybody's best shot against you even you know events that are over in the Middle East like those are those did not turn out exceptional for her so you know Jabir again player I sat down with for a few minutes here very much in I, I almost call it like that Pagoula sort of mentality like very you know big picture focus like what matters to her certainly is kind of the biggest events but The best part of this for her is, you know, she got that started off really last year over in Rome, where she took out Pagula in the final, Um, you know, and and really that kind of set up her her season going forward. There, I mean, she had, and then from then on, it was was Wimbledon, it was the Open. So I, I think, you know, her game is. You know, her game is, is definitely one that I, I think is conducive to the clay um, as well. So we're going to get, you know, someone who can outlast, someone who can, uh, you know, who can get as good as she's going to get, obviously. Yeah. And she's really, you know, she was really one of the only foils to Siatek to last year, even though, you know, Ciatek got the better of her in the big moments. But, you know, if you can get the number two in the world, you can do a lot of things, of course
1: opportunity here and that's the name of the game in charleston as well as going forward ans plays caroline Dolhide. shout out to her she gets the wild card in wins a couple matches it kind of shows you the opportunity Ed, that exists at this tournament and i have to bring her up i know as we record this it's not going well but uh, diana schneider who is still playing college tennis and i just don't know how much longer that's going to be given the level that she's at but she beats Kuder matova she gets a couple wins she's unfortunately as you were reporting on not able to play in her college match this week the rivalry north carolina state versus north carolina but i mean this is a player that's all that's been a good story we saw what she did in australia the decision to even play college was one that she kind of weighed heavily but this is a pro player regardless of whether it has an amateur status by her name or not she's a very pro level player and also good job picking up on the fact that she was cutting wrestling promos about the rivalry as well
2: She's really entertaining. Um, she does feel like someone we're, you might want to catch now before the takeoff really happens. And um, just turned 20 on, um, on Sunday this, this week. So someone, again, who, you know, regardless of how Charleston turns out for her, this has been a success clearly to this point already. Um, beat the number 13 player in the world. And she's, she's told, you know, she said that um, she's going to assess her decision to turn pro, but based on her ranking, she's going to be, I think, in the 80s at the at the minimum after this week, you know, she's balancing at the moment um, college ball with pro ball and, you know, would have actually, again, this, I think, points to like the I'll do, I'll play anywhere, anytime mentality of, of a young yeah. player. Even, even if she had lost her match on Wednesday, she told me that she was going to have someone pick her up, a drive down from Chapel Hill, uh, from Raleigh, to go back to Chapel Hill for the match um, against Carolina. So, you know, someone who, a huge serve, lefty, um, it's someone who is really kind of embracing all the opportunities she's been given here. I think you'll, you'll, you'll see that bandana quite a bit, which she loves to wear. Um, she's a, a great sort of presence and a player probably just kind of watch her now
1: yeah and that's the name of the game we're buying low because the stock's only going to go up with what she brings and uh, how exciting it's been so props to her uh she's currently trailing uh, in the first set against paul bedosa who comes into this you know tournament seated 12th and this is somebody that was top two three in the world and has hit the rough patch that oftentimes happens so she's trying to regain regain her footing. And this is a perfect opportunity for someone that's been a clay court specialist, that's been open about the ups and downs, but has had to get used to, and it's a common theme in tennis, right, having a target on your back now. It's, it's a little easier when no one knows who you are, but now that people are gunning for her, I think it's gotten tougher, and we'll see if Bedosa can respond and rebuild back to the top ranking.
2: I think, again, Bedosa, as you said, you know, someone who had that rapid ascent as well, this time of year in, in the March hardcore stretch is where she cut her teeth. But again, she, you know, I asked her about like, what's, you know, what's the comforting part of this, this next part of the year to you? This clay court stretch. Obviously she will return to Madrid. She will be in you know, really just places that, that are comfortable. And I, and I think that, you know, if, if I could take away a kind of a bigger picture thing from Charleston is that players come here because they're comfortable and that engenders, you know, better play on the court too. So I think a lot of the players that we, you know, do we need to be concerned about Sviatek, like about Badoz, about Jibor? I mean, they're going to be going to locations where they are really probably much more just in their own element. And, you know, you're going to be over in Europe for, you know, through uh, June. And I think what what you get out of that is feeling good about yourself kind of off the court translates to what you can do on the court.
1: Totally agree with that. And I think finding that comfort and finding that, you know, finding that starting place to get your season going, especially a clay court season is huge. And we've seen it by a former champion in Belinda Bench. who loves playing here, seated fourth in the event, trying to set up. She's going to be playing Shelby Rogers, who has had a lot going on, uh, engaged. So congrats to her, engaged to a hockey guy also, which we love to see. But uh, Shelby had a, had a tough win last night. Uh, rallying back to beat fellow American Katie McNally. And uh, you talked to Shelby, and I know she's got this reputation much deserved as a giant killer. I think it's safe to say, Ed, that she loves and, and thrives in this being the underdog role.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's very surprising that she does not have a, a title to her name considering... The players that she's beaten and the stages that she's done it on. The, the, I, I always remember that you know the bar, her wins over Barty and Serena coming in the U.S. But one that I forgot when I was looking up, you know, what she had done was she beat Rebacona on grass last year too, which is a, you know just an absolute fantastic win. Uh, was in, in retrospect. So yeah, look, I mean, that's a that's a nice that's a really nice matchup coming up tonight. We'll see what happens with that. And, you know, as, as Benchich goes, I mean, she's one interesting thing about, about her is that she's really kind of inherited the, uh, the mantle of, of the top Swiss player really in all of tennis with Roger obviously retiring last year and, and Stan as well. You know, he's certainly on, on the last part of his career. Um, so she gets to, you know, she gets to be put almost in a, in a new position where, and, and in, in, in talking with her about that, um, she finds it more not as a burden, but just kind of, a, you know, something that she's almost kind of still, like, awestruck about. Like, she – I feel like she has referred to Roger Federer as, like, you and I would if we were <laughs> yeah. kind of in the locker room randomly with him. Like, she almost comes off as still, like, a fan of his. And I think that's – you know, some. I, I think in some ways that kind of can almost play down the pressure in a sense. Like what, Like, in her mind, like, what do I – who am I to like measure up to this iconic great? And she's had great results kind of here and there. Um, and, and as another player who, again, if you look at the depth of the tour, um, it, it, w- it really would not surprise me if someone like Benchich had a week where we just like, oh, this this is this is the Belinda Bencic show coming up here. So either one of those who going to win that one later, um, have a well, nice chance here. But I, I do want to – I do want to monitor both of them mm-hmm. um, as we go to clay as well.
1: Benches has been a legit threat on a lot of surfaces. It's been up and down, but when it's up, it's at a top level that few on the WTA can achieve. Uh, Ed, before we uh, wrap this up, anybody else in the field that we should be monitoring? We know there's Madison Keys, Azarenka's playing right now, Alexandrova, and uh, of course, Daria Kasatkina, who's trying to build off of a successful year last year. Who else has caught your eye as we... Get ready for the business end of this tournament.
2: Yeah, I mean, Keys is obviously um, a quality selection there. Um, Player who's who has been hard to trust at times, but someone who I again kind of can turn on on a whim. Um, I I think what might be most interesting is, you know, Vika Azarek is also here. Uh, She's playing again at the moment right now, so we'll see how see how that turns up, but. I always wonder kind of where Azarenka was going to go with her career. You know, she has a son. She's had a lot of, she's had injuries over the years, but really this is a pretty impressive story of a, uh, of a, of a multi-time Grand Slam champion who is, you know, kind of like on her third act here at age 33 and, and very much still a, a, an exceptional player and a capable presence of, of everything, I mean, you just gotta look at the Australian Open. I mean, she makes the semis there. Her wins over there, like Keys Pagula, both of those were were contests. Where, where she ends up winning those those final sets, like six one against both of them. Rabakana, you know, she takes her a, a pretty tight two set match there. So. You know, Vika is another player that we're not that should not be overlooked when it comes to week-to-week play. And then she always just gets up for the biggest events, period. Yeah. So when we get when we get to the thousands in Europe, when we get to Roland Garros, let's not forget Vika as well.
1: She's a fighter, and you know she's going to be out there, and she's going to mix up her strategy, and she's going to find a way to go to a Plan B and a Plan C. Always a game, v Kazarenka, especially after Australia. So, exciting to see what happens there. Uh, Ed McGrogan, pleasure as always. You can catch him on tennis.com. Uh, a lot of great content there through Charleston and beyond. I guess the last thing is, with Monte Carlo on the men's side, unfortunately no Rafa and no Alcaraz on, with the injuries, but we will have a returning Novak Djokovic. So, when one door opens, or one door closes, in this case two, another one opens. So, we're losing two of the top players in the game for this field, but we're gaining... <laughs> The guy coming back after a couple uh, month hiatus.
2: It, it, it's funny. It's like it's like we can never get the full puzzle <laughs> back together. Like yeah. as soon as as soon as this happens, but i I, I think that I think again, it, you know, week to week, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I think what's become <clears throat> excuse me what's become evident after Indian Wells, especially, was obviously the, the Djokovic Alcarez collision is, is what I think we're all you know, fantasy booking in our heads, so to mm-hmm. speak. So that could cert- that should certainly happen a time or two on clay. There, there's just enough, presuming Alcaraz is, is, you know, back relatively quickly, you know, mm-hmm. by Madrid, let's say. You, you could expect, hopefully, to see that. But I, I, I did kind of put it out there that I think the bigger, the really big match that I think is the generational tilt that, that's going to really be... Cons- you know, possibly like the defining match of this, you know, generational crossovers. Do we see Alcarez and Djokovic play at Wimbledon? Like that's yeah. the stage. And mm. at, at this point, Alcarez, At, at this point, it does surface. Doesn't matter to Alcaraz. And I think grass. He could be. He could be just as good as anything else. Honestly, right. I, it's obviously a service that took Rafa a while to get, to kind of perfect or to master, really. Yeah. But. I think that's where we're headed here, and that's –
1: yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree, and I was thinking about this now. Like, it it reminds me of Rafa where I could see Alcaraz getting deep into Wimbledon because, as Tracy Austin once told me, like, it all just comes together. There's not a lot of tournaments, so one year it could all just come together. But I could see a very similar trajectory of he gets to the semis, even the final, but it takes him a couple years to, as you said, you know, I think that's a perfect way to describe it, perfect. Where I think that matchup could happen, I think it's going to take maybe a couple years, and Alcaraz is young enough to where this can happen, to where he perfects it. But I have no doubts that he eventually will.
2: I mean, what, it's it's true that we you know we can always raise our expectations with him, but I think the tantalizing part of this is like we're essentially getting, we would essentially get like peak Alcaraz versus, and this is crazy to say, like still peak Djokovic, yeah. and there's no setting like Wimbledon, of course, the attention is heightened. You can just look back at all the different iconic matches there to to validate that. But like, if we were to get, you know, another Alcaraz number one, number two ish year in the rankings. And there's in spite of the injuries, like there's no reason why he, he appears to not have that level, like for a sustained amount of time, like, yeah, I know we want to. I, I know Rafa and Djokovic have played 378 times, but like, I want to see, I want to see Alcaraz, Djokovic, not yeah. only on clay but on grass too.
1: I can't wait. The possibilities appear to be endless. We know that there's a lot of big events coming up that hopefully everybody's in, and we could see the best play the best. So, uh, Ed McGrogan, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I know April is going to be a busy month for you. You're going to have European clay court tennis in the early morning. You're going to have Rangers Devils in the evening. So. It's going to be a busy month for you.
2: Yep. You got it. Yeah. it's uh, Hockey will be ramping up really, really soon. So it, it is a busy month as always.
1: Always a pleasure. Catch him on tennis.com. Ed McGrogan, thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Always welcome.
2: Thanks, buddy. Go build.
1: Huge thanks to Ed McGrogan. Catch all of his outstanding work on tennis.com. He's covering Charleston as well as every tournament around the globe. Ed's got you covered there. Appreciate any chance I get to talk to him. Now we're going to talk to a veteran coach, one of the most well-renowned coaches in the pro game. It's Brad Stein. He's been working with Tommy Paul since 2020, and the results speak for themselves. Paul's now into the top 20. We recap this calendar year that's been crazy crazy successful for the young American we talk about Brad Stein's philosophies as a coach what's worked for Tommy Paul and his relationship and thoughts on the American game the American men's game which is as deep as ever according to the coach a lot of stuff to talk about with Brad Stein here it is now on Tennis Channel Inside It Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from Santa Monica Studios, the show that brings you different perspectives every Thursday in the tennis world. Got a reoccurring guest now, second time he's been on the show. It's been a gear and a lot's happened since our last chat uh, when I think there was a golf course backdrop. Now we get the window and curtains set up, but (laughs) legendary coach in the game, Brad Stein. Welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate being back on again. Hopefully, I'm back on because, uh, like you said, we're we're in a little different spot than we were last year.
1: Yeah, we can just get into it. There's a lot to cover, and uh, I do want to reference the piece that our colleague here at Tennis Channel, Joel Drucker, wrote. It's been, uh, you know, don't want to date yourself by the age, but you're you're approaching a 50 year pilgrimage in the game. So there's been a lot of hard work to get to this point. A lot of different players, but the last time we talked, we were kind of discussing. Your current player, Tommy Paul's, rise in the rankings. He'd won the event in Sweden. He was going into 2022 with a positive outlook. lot's changed since then. We know about the Australian Open semifinal run, which we'll dive into. Some big wins, some competitive close matches, some even victories over the game's best. But I guess to start it off, in this past calendar year, was there any moment in particular where you felt like, okay, it's clicking, we've got something here? What was the first sign that you saw that... Something special is really going on here.
3: Um, you know, I would I would point to probably two two incidences. One, not necessarily the most positive thing, but sometimes those are those are you know they they translate into better results. Last summer, uh, Tommy and I had a sit down in Setogenbosch, the grass court event in in Holland. He had played in uh, Geneva before. Paris and then Paris and then Sotogenbosch and had three first round losses in a row. And to be honest, like he was, he was a little bit, uh, he was struggling a little bit mentally, emotionally. And, and I just felt that he hadn't competed very well in the matches and particularly Geneva and, um, and this event at Sotogenbosch. And um, so we had a little sit down and I kind of laid into him a little bit, to be honest. And, you know, to his credit, I, I I think that I once heard a uh, legendary NBA coach, Don Nelson speak. And um, he said that at, at, with every player coach relationship, there comes a point where the coach pushes and how the player responds to that determines in a, in a large way the direction of their relationship and, and how that goes forward. Yeah. And um, to Tommy's credit, when I pushed him at that time, He responded extremely well and and actually took everything, all the criticism and and everything that I was that I was laying on him at the time extremely well. And I think from there, you know, that's when the rest of that grass court season at that time and the hard court season after that um, and even the fall, you know, really, I think it established for the rest of that year last year what direction we were going and, and and we made some really good progress through that. Tommy had a very good grass court season. He played well on the hard courts and then, you know, third round at the U S open last year. And so I think that moment really set the tone. So for me, that was number one. <laughs> yeah. And the second was this year in Adelaide Adelaide was a, Adelaide was a really big thing because Tommy lost to uh, Jack Draper. And after the match, he sent me a, a long, long, long text and, um, kind of a, frustrated irritating text on his part saying that you know he had been up a break in the first set and ended up losing that set and and said that you know he was just really tired of feeling that he was you know in control of matches and then letting them get away and that had happened a few times here and there and and um so he actually he actually made a list of things that he felt he needed to do better and it was a lot of things that Myself and his strength and conditioning coach Franco and mm-hmm. Hugo Armando, who helps uh, who helps Tommy when I'm not in Florida, we had all been pushing Tommy towards. But it had a lot to do with concentration, focus, yeah. um, intensity in practice, and those kind of things. And it really opened the door. Tommy really created a scenario <laughs> where me and the rest of the team were all able to kind of use his words against him <laughs> to keep pushing, yeah. to keep pushing him and pushing yeah. him harder. He recognized that the next really big step in his progression as a player was going to be more mental than it was going to be right. uh, physical or technical or tactical necessarily. Yeah. And, um, and so going into Australian open, we had like three or four or four or five days, I can't remember exactly, of, of really, really, really uh, highly focused and intense practices. Yeah. And um, probably the best practices, the most consistent intensity level that I had really seen from Tommy. And, um, and I think that was really a big translator to, to how he performed in the event there as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the numbers speak to themselves. I love that accountability story, and then every time that he would push back, you could say, well, you did say this, you did say you wanted to work <laughs> Exactly, <on this."> so,
3: <laughs> exactly. Uh,
1: yeah, 40 wins in the last calendar year. We know the major semi, he's into the top 20 now, uh, and not just because of, of who he became, but that match in Canada against Alcaraz really put him on a different platform in terms of who he beat, how he beat one of the best pure athletes the game's seen in a long time, and Carlos Alcaraz, but also... What I noticed from that match, Brad, was that he served very big in key moments. There was a couple match point down, break point downs, having to protect his own serve. or he got first serves in, he was very consistent. And I know one of the things you preached about with him in reference in articles is coming forward and attacking. Has that started to click as well in this last year?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that that was, we were, we were on that progression. I mean, when he won Stockholm and and going back to the the fall U.S. Open, not U.S. Open, but the uh, fall Indian Wells, you know, the the Indian Wells event that was held in October. Um, I don't know what that was, that 2021?
1: 2021, yeah
3: it seems like so long ago now but yeah. but if you go back to those events that's where we really really started kicking in with a lot of transition and coming forward you know he beat yeah. rublev at indian wells that year and i think he came in like uh 45 times or something like that i know that uh when he beat andy murray at uh at stockholm that he came in like in the 40s again uh was really really attacking and seeing the the, the advantages of, of mm-hmm. doing that and, and that's something that we've just continued to progress with and and have kept as a cornerstone of his game we, we really Tommy's identity has really translated from being kind of when I started with him way back in 2019 to being kind of a counter puncher to now being what we want to we want him to be which is a, a really really effective all-court player that can can make adjustments. He can come forward more if, it, if it's needed against a particular player, even if maybe you're not playing well, you know, for some period of time in a match and and you feel like, you know, your forehand's off or your backhand's off. So, you know, you can make an adjustment and yeah. start attacking more and, and do some different some different things. So um, I would say that, you know, hopefully he's described at this point as being a, a, a an, an all court player with more of an, an aggressive mindset yeah. an attacking mindset.
1: Yeah, I certainly think that's a fair comparison and, and fair uh, description, given where he's come and what he's done so far. I want to get to the run in a second, but I referenced the piece by Joel Drucker that highlights your coaching and your career. Yeah, and then you picked on then you picked on my age, man. I did a, little, a little bit. Who's older, me or Joel? <laughs> that's true. We won't we won't get into that debate. But I don't
3: know actually. I don't know the answer to that, I w- but I know Joel's pretty old.
1: I want I wanted to hear your reaction to uh, you know former coach, former pupil. Jim Courier's comment where he said, Brad's all protein, no fat. Is that a fair comparison? Is that a fair line? You know,
3: you know it's funny. Um, Jim's obviously, I, I mean, in my mind, Jim's kind of the premier commentator in tennis oh, nowadays, oh, yeah. you know, and, 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 a, and a, a basic function of that is is how witty and, uh, and sharp he is. He's a little bit dry all the time, you know, but those kind of comments, um, that's a classic, classic Jim. And I, to be honest with you, I mean, I love that quote. I would take that quote. I would take that quote any day of the week. So it was it was one that stuck out in my mind when I read the article.
1: Well, your style and you you admitted the fact that you like to be confrontational without being adversarial, which I think, you know, to put it mildly, you want to have those tough discussions with your players. You don't want to run from them without getting into a fight every single time. Where did that development come from for you? And I guess the follow-up to that would be, do you think that might be missing with the current crop of young athletes? Are there enough confrontations with these players as they develop?
3: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, if I go back to the early portion of my coaching and when I first got into coaching, you know, one of my mentors, one of, uh, you know, I I always look back and I feel like I had four really strong mentors through the course of my coaching career. And one of those guys was Greg Patton, who was an absolute, legend still is a legend you know in collegiate tennis was two time NCAA coach of the year and I started coaching and got involved with coaching really because of Greg in a lot of ways and and was involved with that I think we talked last time we were on about the Jr Davis Cup program and one of the things that Greg said is that that um coaching is 80% confrontation and and I've taken that over the years and and um I've mellowed in my old age now a little bit. You know when I was yeah. younger and I was first coaching college tennis, I was, you know, in my in my 20s, I was pretty aggressively confrontational. There were a lot of a lot of aggressive confrontations. It was also a different when you're a collegiate coach, it's a little bit of a different yeah. environment when you have a group of guys, you know, you mm-hmm. can you can be a little bit more confrontational in front of a group. But over the years in dealing with, you know, at the pro level and now having coached on the on the pro level for over 30 years, you know, you, you, when you're with an individual guy, there's still constant, constant confrontation. But as you said, it doesn't have to be confrontational. It doesn't have to be adversarial. But you, if you're not confronting your players on. What they're doing and yeah. how they're doing it, why they're doing it, when they're doing it, all those kind of things. I mean, to me, those are confrontations, even though it might be as simple as just asking mm-hmm. a question, you know, yeah. why would you play that shot to that position or, you know, at that score in the match, you know, you, you've got to make a stronger presentation with your body language sure. and those kind of things. But confronting those things as they come up are, are extremely important. I mean, that's part of mm-hmm. that's part of coaching. That's what you have to be doing. Um, to try and help your player become a better player. So confrontation is a key element for sure.
1: Right. And just to kind of borrow another thing in the team sports side of it, it's like those closed locker room meetings where players and teammates who are, you know, on the same page, they might have to just have those confrontations to be like, why did this happen? Why did you do this? Clear the air. It's better to not let, let things be unsaid. And I think that's always been a key, you know, moment is having the player to your credit and to the player's credit for sure, Brad, you have to be receptive to this. And I think that's how we know if partnerships work. It's obvious from the outside that Tommy Paul has been receptive. I know you, you don't have to name any names, but I'm sure in the past there's been players that haven't been receptive and probably <laughs> didn't really work out for the partnership wise.
3: Yeah, no, there. I mean, you know, every player that you work with, like you said, I mean, at this point in my, in my coaching career and how long I've been on tour, I've worked with quite a few different guys. And so everybody's personality is a little bit different and, and you, you learn, you learn how you can be a little bit confrontational and get the most out of your player hopefully and and you're not wrong sometimes sometimes the confrontations become more confrontational it's also it's also different when you're working with uh, you know I've coached guys that were teenagers mm-hmm. and I've coached guys that were in their late 20s and married and had kids and and so you know those life situations that players are in their level of maturity is different i think how you're going to deal with an 18 or 19 or 20 year old um, who's relatively new and fresh on on tour and the standards that you're trying to hold them to and trying to make them be more professional is going to be different than working with a guy who's 26 or 27 or 28 you know if we take that back to my current situation with tommy you know tommy had a reputation when we started of not being particularly professional you know he was having a good time and having fun out there on the tour and and uh and really enjoying all the fun aspects that um tour life can kind of offer you but he probably wasn't as disciplined and professional as he as he needed to be and um and so that was something that you know we slowly but surely progressed towards and i I would say that tommy's one of the most professional guys on tour at this point
1: I would agree with that. And uh, I would just kind of close on the coaching side of things with the fact that you came up, you've been in the game for obviously so long, not to again, beat that drum, but do you still see yourself with all the equity you built up as that young coach that had to prove himself that didn't come from the high level background? Because I think that was, you know, your MO for so long was that, Hey, I didn't have the high level tennis background. I have to prove it every single day, even at your age now and your status in the game. Do you still approach it that way?
3: Yeah, you know, I think it's in my DNA a little bit, you know, I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And, and, and I think that I think that high performing people that are successful in whatever field, they, they tend to question themselves, you know, they're never quite satisfied, they always think they can do a little bit better. You know, failure is obviously part of working again, at any high level production that you're doing, whether it's mm-hmm. coaching, or whether you're in business, or whatever it is. Um, so you're always going to have some failures, whether that's in an individual loss or, yeah. or whatever it is. And, and I have a tendency to look at myself a lot of the time. You know, you know what the player's done on the court. You recognize what they could have done to perform better. But I tend to question myself as to did I make sure that I was clear about how he was supposed to play or what he was supposed mm-hmm. to do. And so I, I have a tendency to look inward. So I think that doubt in a way, has always been um, something that's that's been a positive thing for me to help myself try and progress. And and I like to think, and I, I still feel very very much like this that I'm a lifelong learner, both on and off the tennis court. You know, I mean, I, I'm a curious type of person. I, I like going places and learning about things and finding out stuff. And so, I think that I'm also open. You know, with the tendencies that are happening in the game. You know, you see a guy like like Alcaraz or Sinner and these guys coming along and how they're producing their games now and, um, and trying to figure out, you know, ways that we can be successful against those guys, you know, instead of always looking now we're, you know, obviously the generations are changing with Roger gone and Rafa's Rafa's, you know, kind of in a little bit of a limbo question mark as to where he's going to be and, and everything. And so you're, you're, you're confronted all the time with, with new challenges and, and new situations. And and uh, I think that's a great thing. It's a great thing for me and, it, and it's good for Tommy. And, and uh, Tommy, Tommy although he doesn't like, I don't know, like, maybe like's not the right word. He doesn't make this presentation a lot publicly, but Tommy's a pretty analytical guy when it comes mm. to the game. And I think he has a very, very high tennis yeah. IQ. He loves looking at film and video mm. Uh, of tennis and and he has this tendency he'll tell you this himself but when he's in a tournament he'll watch the matches all the time so he'll come back to the to the hotel and he'll be watching matches that are going on at the tournament when he loses he has a tendency to kind of disengage from that a little bit and kind of get away from it which i think is actually a really healthy process for him that he does stay engaged when he's still actively in the tournaments and then As soon as he loses, he kind of like steps away from it a little bit and gets himself to, you know, he, Tommy likes to get out on the water when he's at home (laughs) and he likes to do a little bit of fishing and, and, uh, wake surfing and stuff like that. And, you know, so he, it's, I think it's a healthy balance for him to kind of create those two kind of things.
1: Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is
0: here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: More with Brad Stein here on tennis channel Inside In. Uh, you know, you referenced Tommy Paul's growth and working with him. The Australian Open and you referenced those great practices, the the high intensity, how crisp he was looking. I know players don't look at the draw, but did you get a sense early on like Tommy's playing well, stuff's starting to happen? This is a real opportunity here. Like were you at least keeping an eye on the options that it could be a, a profitable and an opportunity for Tommy in Australia?
3: Well, we, we, obviously we saw right away, you know, when, when Brooksby beat rude, you know, who mm-hmm. Tommy had lost to at, at uh, the U S open. I mean, that yep. opened the draw up a little bit. He didn't have an easy second round, you know, playing Davidovich Fokina mm-hmm. And that was a, re- that was a serious battle five mm-hmm. setter. But uh, I think that experience is the best teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And Tommy has now been in some situations where he's made some third rounds at, at slams and he's, he's, competed in and gotten through some five setters. And so I think he's much more uh, acclimated to dealing with the physical and the mental rigors of, of winning a match like that, having your day off and then coming back and knowing you have to produce really, really good tennis again, against whoever it is that you're playing. Um, The draw certainly opened up a little bit for him. I wouldn't say that he had a a super, super easy draw. You know, he beat David Fokina and he beat, uh, Bautista Gut in that, in that run, who I both considered to be, you know, right. exceptionally good players and, and not easy guys to get by, uh, by any means. But, yeah. but he, you know, he didn't have to play anybody in the top 10 or the top 15, you know, Batista gut has been there obviously yeah. before, but he's, you know, he dropped off a little bit. Tommy had also beaten him um, in Paris, you know, in the mm-hmm. fall. And so that, that gave him a little bit more confidence and self-belief because I don't know if you know that, but, um, previous to Tommy beating him in Paris he was 0 three against him yeah and the three matches that he yeah. lost he lost the exact same score every time <laughs> four and two four and two four and two and they were on they were on three different surfaces yeah so it was kind of like B- Bautista Agut was a little bit of a you know a thorn in his side so beating him in Paris I think definitely was a, a big thing going into when yeah. he played him in the Australian Open
1: that was, a, that was a good match to reference because it was very clean. That was one where we looked at it and we thought, oh, Batista gut has been there. It's tricky. He knows how to win these matches. And Tommy played as efficient as we've seen. Uh, so he obviously beat Ben Shelton in the quarterfinal, the All-American Clash. It was a phenomenal moment. Had his mom there. It was great. Now, can, now that he won, were you guys able to laugh at the fact that Ben Shelton heard you kind of coaching?
3: You know what's funny is that obviously everybody references that. You know me with the yeah. the tea, the T and everything. But it was funny, but you know when Tommy asked me, Tommy came over to the corner and he asked me, and there's a there's kind of a glass barrier where we were sitting, yeah. and I couldn't hear him. And so he uh, you know he, he asked again, and that's when I said the T. If I if if I had responded right away the first time, I don't think Ben would have seen it or heard it. But Ben said after the match that he never saw me. Okay. He told me, he told me and Tommy in the <laughs> cool down area afterwards that he didn't actually see the big screen yeah. or me do the sign, but that he was a hundred percent convinced in his mind that I was going to tell Tommy to sit uh, on the tee
1: okay. because
3: he had beaten him there. He had beaten him there twice in that game. That was a long game with yeah. a bunch of deuce ads yeah. and he had beaten him twice down the tee already. And so, so he, Ben said, I knew you were going to tell him to sit on the tee. That's what, that's what he said to me. But it turned out obviously to be a mm-hmm. bit of a comical moment. <laughs> I didn't mean by any means to put myself in the spotlight and, and take away from that situation with Tommy, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it was probably not my, um, my smartest coaching moment.
1: It all did work out. He gets the break and he wins the match. It was uh, phenomenal stuff. Loses to the eventual champ, Novak Djokovic. Obviously, no shame there. I thought he handled the press conference really smart in terms of, look, this is what I was trying to do. I had a game plan. This guy just didn't let me do it. Was their perspective gained pretty quickly? I know it's a tough loss losing at that level, but you lose to the best in the game and you get to a major semifinal. It seems like you guys were able to achieve some perspective pretty quickly after that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that sometimes... The kind of match that he played against Novak, you know, in the score and given that you're playing Novak and, and in that environment, you know, where he's absolutely owned that court, it, it doesn't sting almost as much if as if you, you know, had a break in the fifth set or something like that and ended up losing. Mm-hmm. The matches that are super close where you feel like, man, I was in it, I had a chance to win if I could have executed on a shot or two here and there, I think sting more than the ones where you kind of get your... Butt kicked, mm-hmm. you know, and and you come away from that match, and you were like, man, I, I mean, Novak was just way too good in the match. I, I think there was a a little bit of a combination of you know Novak playing phenomenally good tennis, you know, being so comfortable in that environment. Tommy being in his first ever semifinal of a Grand Slam, and having to play a guy who's absolutely owned that court. And Tommy didn't necessarily produce his best tennis. But as you referenced, you know, and as he said in the press conference, he didn't let me play my best tennis. You know, it was hard to find a way to play my best tennis when he was playing so well. Yeah. And, um, you know, that one of the interesting things for me for that match was that in Australia this year in on the center court, in the coaching boxes, they provided us with um, with uh, iPads that had all these different statistical information on it. And you could, you could click on service information and return information and all this different stuff. And the, the stats for Novak returning in the match were absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> like, like it was a joke. The guy, the guy barely missed a return throughout the entirety of the match. And, and that was one of the biggest things, you know, he just was relentless in, yeah. in putting, pressure on tommy and especially on second serves he not only wasn't missing any returns but he was actually you know like jumping on second serve returns and putting tommy on the defense immediately within the points and it was you know if you were tommy paul fan it was it was tough if you were a novak djokovic fan watching that match i mean you were just like this is clinical how how exceptionally good he was playing the
1: match He just doesn't give you anything. It's crazy, like at this stage, too, in his career, how consistent and how much he rises up in big moments. But that was a heck of a run. We know these moments happen. I I did want to ask you about a month later, because I do think that one of the trickier things about having success is building off of it and not just having the letdown that comes with it. Uh, (laughs) Tommy was in one of the craziest matches I've ever seen against Taylor Fritz in Acapulco. At what point did you realize that was just utter chaos? There's cramping, throwing up, <laughs> the conditions are nuts.
3: Yeah, that was that was one of the craziest matches I've watched and I, you know, like yeah. like we said I've been around yeah. the game for over 30 30 years. But I mean it was a wild scenario, the entire the entire situation, the crowds down there in Acapulco, the Mexican <laughs> fans are I mean they're they're crazy tennis fans and they yeah. they were absolutely going nuts. The environment yeah. in the stadium, it was kind of like uh it, it should have been a scene in a World War I movie, you know, it was just it, it became trench warfare, a yeah. battle of attrition, you know, both yeah. guys cramping. And then, I mean, the, the, the ultimate turning point, you don't say this very often in a match. The ultimate turning point was when Fritz went to the sideline and threw up. And yeah. from that point on, from that point on, Tommy kind of dominated, you know, yeah. it was kind of funny because you think sometimes, you know, when you when you throw up like that, you kind of relieve a little mm-hmm. bit of what's going on. But Taylor just dropped off. Okay. I mean, he was, you could see, you could see that he was starting, you know, mm-hmm. I mentioned it to the people that we were sitting with, you know, and I, and I said, man, Taylor's starting to struggle a little bit now. You had seen Tommy struggling for a little bit, but I was like, hey, I think Taylor's starting to struggle. And then all of a sudden it just hit him. And he was, you know, it was obvious that he was struggling. Yeah. And then, like I said, the key moment in the match was, like, the guy throws up. <laughs> it wasn't a forehand down the line or a yeah. passing shot or, you know, yeah. on a big point. It was, like, the guy has to run to the yeah. sideline and throw up. And I actually saw it coming. I said, again, I said to someone, I was, like, I could see him as he was standing there about to serve. And I was, like, he's going to throw up. He's going to throw up. <laughs> and then he ran to the sideline, you know. And, like, wow. and from from there on, he, he just – I don't know if, it, if he lost that much more energy or what it was, but – Tommy maybe seeing that got a little bit of a boost also and pushed yeah. himself a little bit more. But he really kind of dominated from yeah. that point on and through the breaker and everything. But what a crazy match. What a crazy scenario. It's, it's one of those ones where I think as the, as the year goes by, people have to go back to that and revisit <laughs> that as potentially one of the most interesting, craziest, yeah. intense matches that, that happened throughout the entirety of the year.
1: We had uh, Andrea Pekovic calling that match, and she was just calling it a Greek tragedy. It was, it was, it was <laughs> just chaos going on. Um, but, and, and as a coach, you put your hat on. It's a tremendous victory. You show that guts to Tommy Paul to win that match. Do you temper expectations for the final? Because he plays Hour and he put up a fight, but you could just see the energy level wasn't what he was used to, and it's understandable given the war that he had just been in.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know what? I think that Tommy came out and did an unbelievable job in that match against the uh, demeanor because, you know, he ends up playing such a clean, good first set. Tactically played exactly like we talked about in the match. I mean, executed extremely well, wins the first set. And, you know, at that point you're like, okay, we're forcing three, no matter what. And unfortunately for, you know, for our side, you know, Alex stepped it up and started playing, you know, a little bit better, a little bit stronger. And, and you could see Tommy was starting to fade a little bit towards the end of the second set. And then as the third set started, you know, the, the match with Taylor kind of caught up with him and he, and he started, started feeling his body a little bit more yeah. and was, you know, it, it's hard because you, you're on the verge of potentially cramping again, Yeah. you know, and so it, 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 you just, you just have a tough time pushing yourself to the limit at that point. But I was super impressed, to be honest with you, at at how well Tommy performed. And and after the match, you know, Alex's coach, who is a good friend of mine, someone that I know extremely well, played here at Fresno State where I coached uh, a a number of years before him. But um, Peter Luxak, you know, he came up and he told Tommy, he said, man, you were an absolute warrior out there. I never thought you were going to have that much left in the tank Mm -hmm. coming into that match. So that that was nice of him to say. And I think Tommy got a little bit of a boost from that and, you know, felt good about himself, even though he'd
1: lost the match. Well, it was a tremendous performance, as I said. And he got the win over Fritz, which was a long time coven given the last couple matches before. And Brad, I gotta say, like I kind of like where American men's tennis is at right now in the sense of we know the camaraderie amongst the boys, and I'm not gonna compare it to your your previous era where it was just slam winner hall of fame left and right. But there's this nice place of Fritz is the top-ranked American guy. Tommy's on his heels, Tiafo's out there. We have Shelton coming up. It's obviously there's, I'd say cordial and friendly, but it seems very competitive. It seems like there's some jockeying for who can be the top dog and get one up on each other. That's how I'm seeing it from the outside inside. I'm sure it's as competitive as ever.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, listen, it's been well, you know, spoken about and documented that American tennis has been on the rise. And, and um, I think that Taylor and Francis and Tommy and Riley Apelka, you know, kind of led the charge of that a little bit. And then you throw in, you know, we're, we're missing, we've been missing for a little bit now, Sebi Korda, mm. who was having an amazing Australian Open as well. And then you've got, like you said, you know, Ben obviously created a, a huge stir in Australia and, and uh, has gotten a lot of notoriety for what he was able to do down there and and, uh, and then has, you know, still been doing some damage on the tour. And, and um, we'll see if he can continue to, to push. And, and, you know, he's so young and so... Uh, so young especially for being the tour and, and, and everything and you and then you've I mean I think Mackie McDonald has been doing a great job he's been getting some really some really high level wins Marcos Garone has been pushing through so we've we've been getting these situations I'm, I'm for sure leaving some guys out because you you know you go down through the list I mean Maxime Cressy's won a tournament he sometimes is a little, little bit forgotten about because <laughs> yeah. he's kind of like quiet and on the fringe a little bit he's not quite as connected with the rest of the American guys um, but everybody else, man, they're they're yeah. so close and so tight with what they're doing. Where, you know, you bring quarterback. Brooksby's been injured. Um, you know, Kudla's gotten into the top hundred. Now you just got uh,
1: Nakashima. You just got yeah.
3: <clears throat> Nakashima yeah. that's in there. Always super dangerous. Yeah. Um, I think the potential within that group and then you know i look at um chris eubanks who just cracked the top 100 i think uh alex kovacevich is going to crack the top 100 here you know pretty soon and that guy i think is very very dangerous the great thing is is just like we said before you know just the numbers having those numbers but also having the guys that we have at the top who are starting to beat a lot of the top players but you look at the draws and especially the smaller tournaments dallas del rey yeah i mean we had we had you know 10 12 14 american guys in the draws yeah you know so so and and they are definitely pushing and feeding off of each other you know they i think you know 99.9 percent of those guys that i see have a very healthy outlook about actually wanting to see their friends uh do well we yeah. left one out that also did well in australia jj wolf oh yeah jj jj wolf's been having a heck of a year so far you know so i mean i think that that um that just all feeds off of itself, and hopefully it has a trickle down effect, you know, to the to the next generation of guys that are looking at that, that are that, you know, whether it's juniors or guys that are coming out of college tennis that also are looking at all that production, and, and um, those guys also are all very very open. To spending time with the younger guys mm-hmm. and inviting them in for training and practices and those kind of things, so uh, I think we're in a great position with where we're at. I think it's super exciting that uh, Bob Bryan just got named Davis Cup captain. The guys have a really good feel mm. for for Bob. Bob's got a great uh, presentation with the guys. Yeah, obviously, extremely, extremely knowledgeable and been around the game forever. So you know, hopefully, American tennis on a nationwide basis and, you know, representing the country as yeah. within tennis can do extremely well. Also. You no,
1: know, the optimism is uh fully warranted based on the results and uh, to kind of open it further to some other, I guess to the top of the game, we know that the cream rises and we know the, you know, the era of the big three winding down, Federer retired Nadal out with an injury. Novak wasn't allowed to play the sunshine double. And yet there were still the same names kind of going deep into both of these tournaments. And I think, you know, I, I'm not surprised by it necessarily because I think the opportunity in the moment, it's, you know, just a matter of fact, someone's going to seize it. But we did see, Brad, and, and we did see the same players, the as the sinners coming through, going on deep runs. And of course, Medvedev, who makes five straight finals, which is just absurd, but yeah, not, not shocking to see. Maybe the names might be surprising, but eventually the top players will emerge from a, from a crop of really talented individuals.
3: Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. And, and I and I do think I had this conversation uh, not too long ago with Jose Higueras, You know about the fact that Novak's the last of the of the big three. You know, the youngest still. Rafa, like we said, is a little bit in limbo uh, where he's going to go, but he's certainly been much more vulnerable. Over the last six or eight months. He's he's I think he's lost to five Americans in a row mm. or something like that. Maybe it was four, I'm not sure. But but um, so the, there's a vulnerability there with him that wasn't there before. Novak still has that aura of invincibility. But I think everybody else that's that's in the draws, you know, as good as Medvedev is, as, as good as Alcaraz is, as good as Sinner is, you know, anybody else that you can name in the top 10, I think that everybody, not just the American guys feel that every single one of those guys is vulnerable. Whereas when you were competing with the, the big three previously, man, you, you felt like, okay, maybe I can play the match of my life and beat one of these guys, but yeah. then I have to play another one right behind it. And then <laughs> I might have to play a third one behind that. And the chances of getting through two of them is crazy, much less three of them. Whereas I feel like now there's a sense of confidence, hope, in the locker room a little bit more with the guys that are ranked outside the top 10, outside the top 20 or 30, even where I think that, that this, I've said this for a while. I think this generation of tennis is the deepest mm. that we've ever seen. You know, you, you see the guys at the top of the game going multiple set matches, four set matches or five set matches and slams three set matches in masters 1000s or the other tournaments on a much more regular basis, even when they're playing against guys that are ranked outside the top 50, maybe. Mm -hmm. And that's just because everybody's capable of producing top 10 level tennis for some period of time in a match nowadays. Yeah. Whereas I don't think that was true as much, you know, going back to like Jim Courier's era. Right. Uh, the guys outside the top 50 didn't really produce that kind of tennis. And so the top guys kind of dominated them a little bit more, yeah. but nowadays, I mean, what you, you see more and more and more competitive matches and more and more and more upsets. And I think that's kind of a good thing for tennis too.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I would just add to that the, cause like hundred percent, it seems more competitive than it's ever been. I would also just add that the top players, it seems like what separates them is their ability to adjust to read kind of the landscape of how this match is going, what's happening, plan A is not there, what can plan B do, what is that opponent doing? I watched Medvedev do it a couple times in that Miami run, and even the young guys like Alcaraz and obviously Tommy as well. It seems like when you get to a certain point when the upset surge is coming, they can gather themselves, show that composure, the mental side of it, and kind of regroup and make the adjustments they need because the margins are so slim. That's a, a testament to how deep the game is.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I mean, it's also a testament to the toughness of the guys that do achieve the, the, the greatest heights of the game. You know I mean? You look at the, at, at the big three and now, you know, like you mentioned, Medvedev, Medvedev's the guy that for me, he was kind of establishing that kind of aura of invincibility, but then he fell off for a little while. Now he's back again, five finals in a row and you're like, okay, can, can anybody beat the guy? Can anybody do anything, you know? And, I think Carlos and and Sinner both are young enough now that they they have a hiccup here and there. You know, mm-hmm. they're both just absolutely incredible ball strikers and tennis players in general. But they, there's still some times where you feel like, okay, he's gonna he's gonna give something away or he's gonna let you into the match a little bit here and there. You know, and guys feel like there's a sense of hope. Maybe I feel like that because Tommy has beaten both of those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, so hopefully he can produce those kind of matches and beat those guys again down the road. Because obviously if Tommy or if Taylor or if Francis want to have a chance to win a slam, then they're going to have to beat those guys at mm-hmm. some point in the draws. Yeah. And and so I think that it, it certainly hasn't been talked about. I don't think, but I like the idea that we get a, it's like, you get these, these guys that have to play an American at, you know, an earlier round. And and one of those guys takes some energy out of them and then they play another American and that guy can take some energy out of them and then hopefully the next guy can beat them.
1: Yeah. You know, and and
3: and they're kind of it's almost like a team effort producing (laughs) an American Grand Slam winner, hopefully here, you know, relatively soon. And I think once, you know, we saw that in Jim's generation, you know, once somebody breaks through and actually wins one. Yeah. We saw that last year with Taylor winning Indian Wells. How I think that really inspired the other guys a little bit. Um, if we can get an American guy that can break through and win a slam, I think it'll have that same effect yeah. again on pushing everybody to the next level and, and, and getting them even better.
1: That's what's crazy, right? Like that era, like if you ask the casual, like who was the first one in that era, they would probably all, like a lot of people would get that question wrong. They'd be like, oh, it had to be Sampras probably won it first, right? It's like, you no, know, Michael Chang went in that French Open. really <laughs> yeah. was the one that opened the floodgates there. Uh, Brad, yeah. this is this has been a pleasure. Really appreciate you taking time to chat. Uh, we can kind of end with this with the clay court season coming up. What do we have on on the docket for goals? What are we trying to in your camp with Tommy Paul gearing up? I know he's playing in the uh, clay court championships in Houston. He's going to be going over to Europe soon. What's uh, what are the goals for the camp and how to keep steadily improving?
3: You know, I think I think that. Um... It's funny because we just had a conversation, you know, today. I, I'm not in Houston. Um, Hugo, Hugo Armando and Franco uh, Herrero are there. And, and we've kind of looked at Houston. Don't tell the Houston people this. Um, <laughs> I'm semi-joking, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but we wanted to have a really good training block leading into the clay court season. Uh, Tommy didn't have a particularly good training block. He didn't have much time last year. Um, to get ready for clay. And he didn't have a very good clay court season last year. And and I think that Tommy's a guy um, that can play very well on the clay. And I think he can have very good results on the clay. And so we feel like he's got a lot of ground to make up right now, a potential, you know, with, with results. Doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to win any of these big tournaments, but if he can just continue to kind of maintain the consistency in his level of play, and get through to, to the deeper rounds of tournaments, he's going to be making points right now, which is going to help him in the rankings. And, and we, you know, we want to keep progressing forward in the rankings and getting closer to closer to cracking top 10. I mean, ultimately right now he's in the top 20. So obviously that's kind of the next mm-hmm. uh, barrier for us to try and look at is to try and get him to the top 10. For me personally, I also am really, really, really big and, you don't want to push too much. You don't want to talk about it too much, but I really want to see him start winning more titles. You know, mm-hmm. he has one title on the docket right now mm-hmm. and and he needs to win more titles. I think for us to really be honestly in the conversation about Tommy winning major titles that he has to win more titles in general and make that become a more common factor in what happens within his game, whether it's 500s or thousands or two fifties, I don't care. We just need to win (laughs) more titles. You know, you gotta, it becomes a habit. You know, the old saying, the old saying from Vince Lombardi, you know, that winning becomes a habit. The end of that saying is unfortunately losing does too. (laughs) That part always gets less left out, you know? So for me, that's a big thing. and, And I would love to see that happen this week in Houston. I would love to see it happen, you know, on some of the other bigger events and, and, uh, winning some titles in preparation for some of the grand slams that are coming up.
1: We can't wait to see what happens and yeah, getting used to that winner's circle. That's the name of the game, right? I know it's only one champion, but there's opportunities out there. He's played well. It's a testament to your coaching and everything that's gone on. Brad Stein, this has been a blast. Thanks again for coming on. You know, you're welcome anytime. Uh, been a long time coaching the game, uh, was the youngest coach in college tennis. So we've had both ends of the spectrum. So yeah, that's
3: a long time ago, a long time
1: ago, but Brad Stein, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining tennis channel inside in.
3: Thank you, man. I really appreciate it.
1: And that wraps up this week's episode of tennis channel inside in thank you to Ed McGrogan and thank you to Brad Stein for appearing as guests. And a reminder you can catch us on the tennis channel podcast network if you go to tennis.com podcast this show and the entire catalog of other outstanding shows on our network will show up and tennis channel Insight in is on all your podcast platforms whether you get them on apple spotify iheart Podcasts, google or everywhere so you can subscribe leave a rating a review and tell a friend about this tennis podcast we're back next week to cover more clay court events monte carlo is going. Got to recap Charleston. The road to Roland Garros has started. Everybody in the car, we're ready to go. It's going to be a fun one to say the least. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thanks again to both guests. And thanks again to everybody out there for listening. Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.